listening to Rough City Radio, your underground overwater home of all the latest news about the Callisto 6. My name is Mitch, aka Kung Fu Panzer, and with me, I have Laurent, aka PA Blackhawk, KC Coleman, aka Phoenix, P H E O N Y X, Az, aka Captain Tiny, Craig, aka VCAM Spout. You all are really going to tell the corporations your real names? I'm Kato. A.K.A. Cato, and that's all you're going to get. Fight the power. Fight the corporations. <laughs> all right, we're going to have a recap of issue one, and then we'll get into the discussion. The year is 2119, and Los Angeles is a city of contradictions. After an earthquake decades ago, downtown was given over to corporations, while outlying areas fell into disrepair. In Raft City, a floating mess of docks, pontoons and houseboats that floats above the artificial reef that marks former seaside areas like Long Beach, Marina del Rey and Santa Monica, Lacey wakes just before dawn. They settle in their hover chair nervously and recheck the device is sealed away in their trunk. Their friend Luma arrives and the two leave for the expo, leaving Lacey's fathers to enjoy each other's company. They take a ride from Mike, who drives a taxi-like hoverbike with two sidecars. Meanwhile, in Baldwin Island, what remained of Baldwin Hills when the waters rose, Oya wakes. She looks out at the view across the city, taking in the shining towers of downtown, and smiles to think of what some business would offer for this property. An impatient knock at her door reveals Cass, who has been up all night, and is ready, with sign, to go to the expo and protest the corpse. Oya, meanwhile, is going to try to find a job. Anton, a fresh-faced employee of Cassium, the Genetic and Health Insurance Corporation, is already there and expecting an old friend, Lindy Hops Hopper, the daughter of Timothy Hopper, a famously brilliant mind. Hops is nervous and a little awkward, especially when the CEO of Pyramid Star Solutions, Kylan Krauss, personally appears to greet her and she discovers she's expected to make a speech that night at a dinner in honour of her father. Luma and Lacey make it to the expo and meet Michelle, an employee of Cassium, who is excited that Lacey came up with a solution to a technical problem they'd been having themselves, when it took a whole team of developers to do the same. She asks to look at Lacey's work and takes it away with her. On five screens, a notification flashes up, Winner! Everyone has one seat at table 42C for the night's entertainment, the same table where Hops has been placed before her speech. That evening, as they gather, there is tension in the air. The protesters against the corporations have been joined by a counter-protest and now 6,000 people are outside, being held back by corporate security and a token police presence. Cass is the only one that notices when Luma and Lacey duck under the table during a speech to check on the device, which has turned itself on again. The device, a cylinder of glossy red metal with a blinking green light, is something Lacey discovered in Santa Atlantis during a dive. The speech before Hopses concludes with a live link to the moon base set up by Pyramid Star, and she nervously begins to talk. As she stumbles through a joke, she is interrupted. The protest has turned violent, and they have broken into the convention centre. Everyone is instructed to follow their robot to safety. Cass is itching to run back and join the protesters, but she has to keep Oya safe. Luma and Lacey discuss whether Lacey could help. They're not a hacker, but they could stop the robots. The six people from Table 42C emerge into a quiet alley on the side of the convention centre. Not far away, a woman in a blood-spattered lab coat turns to look at them. She says, I'm so sorry, I'm out of time. There's a canister in her hands. 
As she opens it, blinding light engulfs the six. They feel pain and warping, and Oya fills her mind open to everything that has or will be, while Luma feels the connection between everything in the world. Her hands ripple and her face twists. Lacey's mind is consumed with nothing but the constant hum of yeses and noes, while Cass drops to the ground and finds her hands break the concrete into rubble with ease. Anton feels his face slide away as his body stretches and hops, hears a buzz as she is engulfed in a lightning-bright column of energy. As the feeling fades, Luma and Lacey rush to the woman and look over the canister. Scrawled on the top are the words, Callisto 6. And Lacey asks, what is Callisto 6? And off of the back of that recap, how are we all feeling about issue one of Callisto 6? Oh my god. It was so cool. I had so much fun. I loved it. Everything was great. That's my input. We can all go home now. <laughs> and that's the podcast, guys. Yeah, it was amazing. It was just amazing. I, I love how they had everything set up. Um, you know, the set, the costume, everything just clicked. I think there's just this the general consensus of uh, it, it kind of blowing everyone away with how well they managed to pull this off. Oh, my dude. Because we had costumes, we had with so much. And like that's a, probably a pretty good place to start is the wonderful <laughs> bow that wrapped Callisto 6. So I think we have to kind of go to our consistent uh, judge of visual appearances as who topped the looks and why was it Hector? <laughs> <laughs> you joke, but I have to say as much as everything about Elisa was perfect in every way and Gina's wig was the best thing I've seen in this century... Hector's coat with the little popped collar and the shiny silver, my god. I don't know where he found it, but it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. He looked like a Harvard graduate out of Back to the Future. That is true, yep. <laughs> oh my god. Yes, yes, exactly that. And what's, what, what's really annoying about it is on anyone else, that coat would look so tacky and like... <laughs> <laughs> what kind of vintage party clothes shop debts did you like wrangle this out of? And then you look at Hector and you can see him wearing that like just in LA, just wandering around like, yeah, this is my coat now. I, I suspect a Jaffe, honestly. That wouldn't surprise <laughs> me. But he pulls it off and that makes me so mad. I think one big thing I really enjoyed is that we had very distinct costuming for each player. So we had like some color theming. We had just that kind of going from Lindy, who is quite relaxed, to Hector's quite serious, controlled costumes, and then just Amy looking dope. Yeah, Amy was dope. That bomber jacket was mm. something yes. else. And how about? I, I think we all just need to take in a moment and just appreciate how good Eric looks in black. Oh, yeah. yeah, dystopia looks really good on Eric, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. And I really like Gina's hair as well. Mm. That kind of Gina, white Gina's fading weak. into pink at the ends. I thought it looked great. Although without the pink, it reminds me a bit of uh, Sela from Next Generation. 
Ooh. Yeah. Sorry, I just had to <laughs> crowbar the mess hall door yeah. open a little bit there. <laughs> <laughs> we still love Star Trek. You know, it had touches of Blade Runner as well. Uh, one of the yeah, Rapid kind of Blade Runner, something like that. And it kind of felt like Sia as well, the um singer. Oh yeah, yeah. I think the hair in particular is interesting because although the hair and the wigs that were present on the day looked great, they kind of pale in comparison to the hair of the characters that wasn't realized so Lacey's oil slick uh with the side shave bob and the geometric designs cut into it and also Cass's rainbow hair um and I certainly hope I see from perhaps both Amy and Sam in the future an actual realized version of their haircuts because they both sounded awesome as well oh yes please yeah no knowing their dedication to both characters and costumes it wouldn't surprise me if we see them soon and luckily, LA has some really good wig shops. And, you know, just so many good costume people. Yeah. It's <laughs> wild. LA. The interesting thing about the costume is when you're all wearing different things, there's a lot to consider about like how comfortable it is to wear a particular costume. And I think perhaps mainly for the more femme presenting of the cast, it's interesting to sort of say, yeah, everyone looks comfortable in their costume and their costume design. This is something they can wear for three hours every week if they're going to do that. Um, I think that's probably a consideration that took place that in an actual superhero comic, we would not have seen that. Mm. And I also just want to highlight the possibility of future costume changes to reflect changes in character and personality. As we know, this is going to be a sort of 12 episode block and then a break, perhaps at the start or the end of a season, seeing that kind of costume change. And so I love that they've built on the potential from Shield of Tomorrow where we all had costumes, but they were very samey and there wasn't much opportunity for change. There's also the... um what will be up and coming is if they are rebel superheroes is concealing their identities. So we may even see like a super suit and a civilian outfit. But I'm just thinking know. about the dynamics of that. And that's going to be so interesting to see because it's kind of hard for them to change. It's kind of hard for them yeah. to change at the table. Although it'd be interesting to see them try. In the Dick and Johnson episode, Hector did very sneakily pull on half a Star Trek jacket to Gina's absolute surprise despite <laughs> yeah. being at the table with him so I'm sure I'm sure they could work something out I mean something as just as easy as a domino mask would be great but that's I just have a preference for domino masks because me me a big Robin boy oh, yeah. I think Gina's character design uh the mask the sort of like candy skull mask mm, the skull mask design she's got going on that's certainly something Gene is a fantastic prop maker and I would not be surprised if we saw that mask in the future. Please, yes. Yeah. It's very it was very evocative of um Sombra from the Overwatch series of Peoples. Oh yeah. Like it I very much got that kind of a vibe and I was really, really enjoying it. So, the set. A big departure from the Star Trek L cars back in. Yeah. Um and I didn't love it, but I think the reasons I didn't love it were more the problems that everyone's kind of expressed in that, man, it's really hard to see stuff in grey. And particularly the costumes, if you saw on Instagram or on Twitter, some of the cast members posted their costumes later and they're so vibrant and they're really colourful and they absolutely pop. And the lighting, particularly on the set, does not carry that through to the audience at home. And so it's kind of hard to really appreciate the set for that kind of technical reason. The set, I, I think, is going to grow. And I might actually uh, give a counterpoint. It's not the lighting that's a problem. It's a filter that they overlay over it. I did see a comparison between Alpha and Twitch, especially from VOD. 
the alpha of, uh, on-demand video is much cleaner. And if that was the look that they were going for, it looks much better. It's still very much mm. the Man of Steel, Batman versus Superman end of the chromatic spectrum versus the Thor Ragnarok end of the spectrum. Uh, that is very true. Yeah. And I prefer superhero films to be Thor Ragnarok because grey is not the most interesting colour to have in a monochrome. Get that Zack Snyder shit out of here. <laughs> but but I also feel like we may get some more interesting coloured lighting and stuff like that when we develop the kind of superhero identity of the show more. Because right now we're in this place where they're all still civilians. And that may actually be a thematic choice. Maybe. But also with the lighting, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But it looked like the one table was lit a lot better than the other. Where Aliza, Hector, and Bonnie sat was much more brighter in tone than, uh, sorry, Amy. Uh, Amy, Hector, and Bonnie. It was more like the lights were pointed directly at them, whereas Sam, Gina, and Aliza, it seemed a bit darker. They were catching the, the, the side light, basically. I suspect, yeah, that the set is going to grow over time. We may even see changes between seasons. And really, we just kind of have to watch and wait. Yep. It's a great yeah. foundation for a set. Um, yeah, it feels yeah. like a blank canvas at the minute. You know, it's just waiting for things mm. to come onto it. That that said, always I kind of thought that the lighting and the dark background it kind of reminded me of either like an abandoned warehouse or like an underground lair or something. But it's rave time, kids. It is very evocative, and it perfectly encapsulates, I think, the tone they are trying to set for this world. I don't necessarily have problems with going for grayscale or going for washed out tones as an artistic choice. I just felt that I like colour and I maybe miss the bright colours of the L cars. That's it. it. It kind of feels like the set was supposed to be that last alleyway that we saw uh, in the in the plot. So I think that's what they were going for. Yeah. All right. Before we get into like the theme and the intro, it is so wonderful to see Gina and Sam next to each other Oh, again. I missed it yes. so much. And that harkens back to over a year ago with TBD, and it's so nice. And that's just a little om nom nom delightful little tidbit. Chef's kiss. And they can get back to their really, really close relationship that we know exists in uh, real. Mm. Yes. Yeah, because we know how well they play off each other. Yep. So we have a wonderful Jason Charles Miller intro song and a wonderful animated intro with little kind of snippets of each of their powers. I thought it was really nice, and it kind of, it reminded me of like an old school 90s kind of X-Men intro. Oh yeah, I, t mm -hmm. I totally see that, yeah, that's a, that's a yeah. good point. I mean, the, the art design on those characters is freaking awesome. They look mm. like they were just jumping off the page of a comic book, you know, it's a, brilliant. I think it's, um, was it Mike Hamlet who did the artwork there? Yeah, I, I believe so. Yeah. yeah, you did a great job. I also think it's interesting that for the design for the Shield of Tomorrow characters and for to a larger extent for the TBD characters, you weren't necessarily expected to picture Amy's face as the Doctor. Amy kind of had a face claim for the Doctor, and you weren't necessarily going to see... You weren't expecting to look at 
Gina and Seemala 100%, but I think very clearly in the designs for these characters, there's very much a deliberate choice to say they very much draw on the faces of the characters, which means that it does, faces of the actors even, and it, which means that it does kind of let them see themselves be superpowered, which you can tell they all love so much. Oh, yeah. It's like a dream come true for pretty much everyone. Who doesn't want to be a comic book superhero? Me. Me? I want to be a comic book supervillain. So bad. <laughs> I, knew, I knew it, Kato. I knew you would have the dark side in you. Ah. Thank you, Kato. I love you so many, Kato. I'm, I love lawful evil. Let me be Lex Luthor, please. <laughs> I knew it was right. <laughs> Sorry. Let's just rewind just a yeah. minute. So, do we have anything else on the theme? Me, me, pick me. For one, I think the style is is very different to Shield, and the way that the even if you look at the the transitions of the the way the art moves is very evocative of the theme and the art itself, and that's wonderful. But it's just so exciting to see a theme song and an intro from episode one, because in some ways that makes it just that little bit more real. And that's not saying that episode one of S.H.I.E.L.D. was disappointing because it didn't have a theme. But I remember when the intro got revealed at whichever con it was, and then everyone else got to see it the next week, and everyone was so excited to bring it onto the screen, and they'd been keeping really quiet about the makeup that they had done and everything. And now... With the preparation for Callisto 6, they've had the time and the expenses to be able to do that beforehand. And so right from the get-go, we get that feel and emotion and excitement that you get with a theme song and an intro. Even when you watch TV and the theme song and the intro starts for a show you're watching, it just makes it that little bit more exciting to watch and it kind of pulls you in just that bit deeper. Yeah, it's... Was really fun, and I think just a huge shout out to the GNS production team for everything they pulled off with Chef's Kiss. Six. All right, shall we get into LA twenty one nineteen? I really love this show, and I'm really excited to see where it goes. But it hasn't won me over a hundred percent yet, and I think it's because of a lot of problems I have with the whole setting. And I think it's it's partly just because cyberpunk is a difficult thing to tell, and coming off the back of Shield, which was so relentlessly positive and optimistic. I am struggling a little bit with the change to this very dark vision of our future. Okay, well, not very dark, but this reasonably dark vision of our future. You're suffering a bit of whiplash there. Yeah, and I think I try not to be defeatist about the future, and I have a tendency to kind of go, oh, you know, yeah, there's a chance that things will be terrible, but we can change that, we can make it better. And so I think that I, I'm engaging with this setting much more negatively than I should necessarily, because I'm kind of going, oh, well... I don't want to believe that this is inevitable, so I'm going to try and nitpick, which is unfair to Eric and the team, because I think they have made a very cohesive setting. I do think LA is unreasonably globally dominant. I was expecting to get a much more like city-state kind of vibe, that there was the city you couldn't get into or out of it for particular reasons, and it was very sort of contained and separated from the rest of the world. But it seems like the corporations that run LA also have a moon base and that LA is the most technologically advanced place in the world. And I'm kind of going, well, that doesn't read to me necessarily. I want to hear about the things that China is doing and, and Japan and where New Zealand and Australia are and what's Europe doing and what about South America? What about Africa? Like, I'm, I'm interested in sort of hearing that other countries and other places have done cool things. And I'm kind of a little bit distrustful of this idea that LA is the best. 
Right, but we also don't know a lot of the, the, the history. And with it being episode one, I, I think we'll start learning more and more and more of not just the rest of the world, but the history leading up to the Cataclysm. C-Day. And the C-Day, thank you. And the 40 years intervening, so... I suspect once we learn more about those 40 years especially is when we'll start learning about whether or not the world kind of just let LA die, which is what I suspect happened. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm, where my curiosity lies is if this cataclysm, if this apocalyptic event seems to be confined only to Los Angeles and the corporations then went, we can save you, but then you're beholden to us. What about the rest of the world and how did they respond to this crisis? But it also leads into a lot of potential and, plot hooks. For example, there is always the thing of, did the corporations cause it to then get a stranglehold on LA to then flood out to the rest of America and the world? Or what? I And I believe as we go through, we'll find out what caused C-Day and we'll find out about the first response to these things. And we'll find out about people like Kylan Krauss who have capitalized and exploited Los Angeles because of this. And that's what could have skyrocketed their companies to global control. But I think it it's very hard to tell. I struggle with the idea that being in total control of a single city will inevitably lead to your control of the world, I guess. And I, I accept the premise on some levels, but then the idea that like these guys who own a quarter of LA also own the only moon base in existence, that seems kind of unrealistic to me. Well, the thing is, it could have been a point where they were already globally dominant and then they've just taken this as a platform to then gain more power because it's like Kylan Krauss who is pyramid tech yes um has a very uh, eastern european name is potentially from eastern europe and pyramid may even have started in eastern europe so these are, could be things where they've used that calamity to widen the corporation mm-hmm. further i i guess i I feel like I've had my fill of settings where where the Western sort of nature and the Western way is the one that dominates. I felt like I I read all of those stories and I've I've seen all of those stories and I was starting to kind of get really into like Afrofuturism or stories that kind of focus on the rise of China and the rise of the Far East as being kind of the potential for the future. And I think not to be dismissive of of America, but the consensus globally at the moment is that they are not going to be the world's only superpower and the president is not going to be the leader of the free world for much longer and that China and other countries are stepping up to replace them. And so I'm kind of, I'm interested, you know, I, I, I'm I no longer here for stories where America is still the dominant force, I guess, because I don't think that reflects the current trend anymore. And so I'd kind of be more into a sci-fi story that told that address the kind of the trend as it stands now, which is not towards America still being on top in 100 years. Yeah, definitely. And that that we don't really know where America sits in the global hierarchy. Because, yeah, stories like Justice League of China, like there's so many interesting non-American-based stories that I would love to see how Eric can integrate things. Because we already have, based on the propaganda, we have an Asian mayor of LA, whether he is American-born or not, whether he was installed by one of the um, corporations or not, we don't really know. So I think there's a lot of potential for the story to grow in many different directions, and we really kind of have to... 
I think it's also with Cyberpunk, there is that suspension of disbelief that you have to kind of go in having, but I think it's going to be a wait and see kind of deal. I'll pretend I don't believe in humanity's ability to overcome whatever this is. I'll pretend I think that humanity is going to be this shitty. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So I think one of the most interesting parts of kind of the setup that Eric has done is Rough City and also this kind of segmented corporate zone. Clearly uh, instilling like a them and us mentality and basically the main tenet of cyberpunk being that class system. So what do you guys think about that? It sounds right for what we get as far as background of how this world works. That you would have what's essentially a low-income gathering of slaughter slapdash things from, of course, all the sea vehicles that are out there. Given that you have the Port of LA, you have Long Beach, you have Dana Point, all having pretty substantial civilian craft. Not to mention Mm. all the commercial traffic that goes in and out of that area. All kind of congregating into this little flotilla. Kind of reminds me of Waterworld a bit. And then... Oh, yeah. I I can see that. (laughs) Um, And then your strict, uh, clean metropolis being run by the corporations. Being very, very sterile. And high-tech. Well, it's, it's actually kind of... So I recently finished reading uh, Gotham City Garage, which has this kind of similar vibe, especially when it comes to the uh, city zone. And I would recommend that comic. It is wonderful. But it's going to be really tricky to balance that and really maintain that class divide. Because we've already seen that there is somewhat free passage between the two zones and potential of people to get out of the poor district into the rich district. And also, and the, and the gentrification the other way. And yes, and the desire for the rich to, for want of a better term, colonize these poorer areas and make them more palatable. So I think, again, and this is probably going to be the theme of this episode, is time will tell. Yeah. Yes. I kind of want to see what, how the rest of Southern California is uh, portrayed. Exactly. Particularly because I'm so familiar with the area. So I kind of want to see outside of LA, how's Orange County doing? How's San Diego County doing? Interesting question, mm. Lauren. Where you live, would that have been affected by a sea day catastrophe? Would you be currently underwater, you think? I don't know. So, Lauren, you it dead? It kind of depends. <laughs> I mean, it's 2119. He probably dead. Yeah. <laughs> He's probably... He pro- Lauren's probably dead by this time, yes. There's a but like, more on his passing. Yeah, the, the question, though, is how far did it come in? Did it come into... The five freeway? Did it come into the 73? Did it come into, did it just, like, I know for sure, like, the Coast Cities and PCH is gone, because there's no way that that's surviving if Long Beach is already uh, underwater. Long Beach is right on the coast, but they have a significant amount of real estate inland. There's an airport and all that, and that's not that close to the water. It's probably about a couple miles, I want to say. Especially that airport. I'd love to see a map oh, yeah. of yes. what I, I, I want a map like. and I yeah. want overlays kind of, of the a map of the current and after. thing and see which bits have been flooded and just yeah. You know, also have mm. it have It'd it be such an topographical too, so you can see the um, 
what's it called the uh level of the land as it rises and you can then follow where the water is yeah. exactly flown into and then of course you need to put down where raft city has been relocated obviously and you need to have a very intricate legend a oh, measured yeah yeah that sounds great to me and then of course you need to then revise the entire city center because i believe they said that the corporations had completely redone basically the center of la into their own um, mm -hmm. play area i guess is the best term all right you, you got that eric i'll <laughs> yeah, on my yeah, desk by monday yeah, just produce the map i'll be happy it also sounds like some of the the uh, iconic buildings of LA have been completely wiped out, especially that that bank building in the center of the city. I believe it's U.S. Bank Building. I wouldn't know. I'm from the wrong continent. The only Californian here is you. Yeah. <laughs> I think what this pilot episode suffers from is that were this a book that we were reading and we've read chapter one. We would keep reading and we'd go, well, what's happened to the rest of the world? What's happened to the rest of America? What's, you know, how has LA ended up like this? What's everything else doing? And we'd keep reading to find out. And so we have all these questions and ultimately we know they're probably going to get answered, at least in some respect, but we haven't got that future content mm -hmm. to be able to dive into before we discuss it. So again, it's a bit of time will tell, but I also think that's a really good strength for this pilot in it, that it you come so away questions. with so many questions that you want answered because it's a compelling enough setting that you want to continue exploring it they're great hooks aren't they yeah yeah for better or for worse Kato. oh and i did look it up it is indeed u.s bank tower so if you take a look US bank tower. if you see yeah. the building you'll know it if you've seen enough of uh la and like movies yeah. and things like that going into kind of political and military coups and that kind of stuff it's very common for an overtaking party to remove any major significant buildings and or figures so that could have been a part of the corporate overhaul of la or it could have been destroyed in on sea day i have a feeling it was destroyed in sea day it, either it was destroyed on sea day completely removed entirely or it was utilized but renovated yeah, utilized by one of the corporations and kind of they just renovated it and changed it rather than built it from the ground up. Mm. So instead of being a US back building, it's now a Cassian building. Well, considering the the general feeling that I got from the architecture of the city, uh, it would have had to have been completely removed because US Bank uh, Tower and a lot of the buildings in LA are not really like the metal and steel that was described there are a lot more stonework there's a lot more you see a lot more of like the spanish-ish influence in their architecture in la it's so, the future they've got chrome plating they can chrome plate <laughs> the bank yeah it's still stone it's pig iron yay so i think if as and kato are ready to fight me biotech versus cybertech it's just not enough biotech Biotech is going to be way faster than Cybertech to sit to fix. Like, uh, I I struggle with the suspension of disbelief specifically on this one thing, um, because it's much easier to get a biological system to do what it's been doing for millennia than it is to work out how that works and then program a computer to do it for you. End of. Me and Kato watched this together, this episode live together, and for a good hour and a half of the episode. 
we were sat there going, where are my stem cells? Where are my stem cells? Where are my stem cells? I can verify this. I was also present. Bearing in mind, with the current technology of 2018, we can grow a heart from scratch with stem cells. And biological technology and genetics are very, very hard to patent. So there isn't going to be a stranglehold on the research which would develop these kind of technologies by the year 2119. Even if you take the calamity out of this, even if you take C-Day out of this, by the year 2078, we would easily, at the rate the research is going and at the rate we are discovering how to use utilize stem cells, we would easily be able to regrow limbs, restart organs, and basically fix any part of the human body by basically just getting it to do it itself. And that is fundamentally cheaper and fundamentally safer than any kind of cyber technology. However... May I make my main major point about <laughs> yeah. this? No, yes, I'm not it. finished. Okay, <laughs> my main major point in favor of cybertech is that it is more profitable. Probably. And because the corporations control LA, they are basically their own country, and they can control what goes in and out of LA. So, in my opinion, what they would do is do the most profitable thing, restrict the access to biotechnologies, while still maintaining that there are biotechnologies available with, like, Cassium and stuff, and obviously available if you can afford it. Cassium in this episode says the technology is not yet there for biotech, that it's still 10 to 20 years away. That's what Cassium say. Yeah, exactly. I am that cat from Saga. Yeah. Every time somebody from Cassium opened their mouth. <laughs> yeah. Lying! And that's the thing. See, see, the thing is, I agree with Az that it is much, much easier to make biotech work than cybertech. And I would say that between 20 and 50 years from now, we will be regrowing limbs. I would argue that the biggest reason that there is a delay on that, the biggest reason it is going to take maybe 50 years, bearing in mind that this show is set 100 years into the future, the biggest delay is ethics. If you could get a corporation and that corporation could unethically perform experiments on people right now, it would take maybe five. It is not going to take very yeah. long to make biotechnology work. And biotechnology is going to be cheaper than cyber technology because organic matter is a lot, lot cheaper than metal. If you add into that the potential to patent certain genomes, uh, to patent those techniques, I would argue that biotech is going to be as profitable in the future as pharmaceuticals are now. So extrapolating that purely just on the basis of who would survive the corporate war, it's obviously biotech and not cybertech. I think it is tricky to divide what is truth, what is corporate statement, and therefore questionable, and what is outright lie in this setting. And we're not wrong to say biotechnology should be a thing, because even in the case that it existed elsewhere in the world, I would expect a boat to be anchored outside, like off Catalina Island, essentially, uh, with a ship full of people willing to do biotech biotechnology to help people because that's chaotic good surgeons just hanging out in international <laughs> waters that's what we do right now surgeons that aren't allowed to perform yeah. surgeries that aren't allowed to do things because of the laws of countries sit in boats of africa and of other places and deliberately provide services at sea if you think the rest of the world could possibly have biotechnology which it absolutely should by this time then they would be kind of outside the city limits going hey do you want to get a new arm? We will do it for you for free because guess what? The rest of the world probably still has socialized healthcare. And I suspect 
LA would be a charity case. The thing is, it all depends on what kind of control the corporations have on LA, what kind of control they have on communications to external sources, what kind of control they have. Do they have an embargo on anyone not approved? Do they have like a blockade on the bay? There's so many possibilities and abilities for them to control both any medical systems and any corporate and trade systems that this city of LA could be so completely underdeveloped and not know it. If you're going to make the argument that the rest of the world is more advanced than LA, you cannot then make the argument that LA must control all communications. Because if the rest of the world is more advanced, the rest of the world will have ways to subvert communications. I'm not saying that the rest of the world, I'm not saying that LA is more advanced, I'm saying the corporations are more advanced. And there is a distinction, the The corporations control LA, but they are not just LA. But again, I don't, I think it's it's excessive to argue that the corporations are going to be the most advanced thing on this planet. That is giving too much credit to capitalism. I mean, based on the fact that they were the only ones who were able to save LA, it is kind of inferring that they are, they were at that point 40 years previous, the most powerful figures. It also has some sort of geopolitical ramifications as far as Southern California. Given that San Diego County has the highest concentration of U.S. military service members, given that the Navy and the Marine Corps are there, and you have uh, March Air Reserve Base out there, you have 29 Palms, you have a lot of military installations in Southern California. Where did they all go? It means that there was some sort of ongoing calamity or ongoing conflict or something to draw those forces out. For Eric, please US tell us had... so I can stop arguing with my friends. <laughs> Given that even in the 92 riots, we had Marines and National Guardsmen in L.A. able to deploy. And there wasn't even that many of them. Uh, it was only about, I think, 2,000 National Guardsmen and 1,500 Marines. And there are far more than that on Camp Pendleton and then also all of the bases in San Diego. There's a large military presence. So given that one of the first responders in many ecological disasters is the U.S. Navy, there must have been something else that either reduced the Navy and the military down to a size where the corporations could go ahead and come in or there was another thing going on where they were like, oh yeah, you can take care of it. Because there's a large presence. Large. We're posing a lot of questions that we cannot even start to think about. Where are my stem cells, Mitch? Yes, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. But we're gonna, we will continue to ask and try to answer these questions in future episodes of Rough City Radio. But right now, we're kind of stuck with what we got. So I think let's move on from the setting and on to our lovely player characters. I love them all. I love them all so many. I just want more. Because they are so interesting in the very, very small amount of time we've had to meet them. They've already established themselves, both personality-wise. We have the three separate relationships, very much similar to how Crit Roll 2 started, and now the grouping together. And we obviously got so many interesting combinations and interesting future developments, especially with Anton and his relationship with corporations. I'm just very excited for where Eric can steer this ship. 
and you mentioning Anton basically brings up a point I wanted to make about the character is I have a feeling that's going to be the character that has the largest character development because I have because right now he's bright and shiny corporate employee happy to be there you know he's walking propaganda he's climbing that corporate ladder that gloss of how great the corporations have been that hasn't worn off yet so seeing that sort of fade more and more as the the season progresses as time progresses that's why i say he's going to have the biggest character growth at least probably for season one the other characters already have sort of locked you know you know where they stand already where there isn't going to be that change. You're not going to see as much of a change that way. That's why I said Anton's going to be the one that changes the most character-wise in terms of seeing that gloss slide off and being opened up to what's really going on. Yeah. You'll see the nasty side of the corporate world, I suspect. Exactly. It's interesting because, from my point of view, I hope he does make that character arc. It is the most obvious arc so far. I think everyone has to grow, but Anton's path seems so obvious. And he could choose to walk it, and he could choose to reject it, and both of those things would be interesting. I think Hector and Eric are going to have to work to make that character arc work for me, because I've seen it before. Yeah, we don't want to see the same trope played out. It's interesting because I think it's very good that they aren't all coming from exactly the same place. I think it's very necessary to have that character with a different perspective. But I'm I'm aware that I am not necessarily interested in men discovering that the world was harder for other people narratives because I've seen a lot of them and many of them aren't good. And I don't necessarily think that Eric's yeah. and Hector's won't be good, but it's not a plot that I've looked at and gone, oh, I'm already excited to see this character change and grow in ways that I think kind of unnecessary. What would be really interesting would be if Anton is right and everyone else's character has to change and adjust to the fact that his truth is the objective truth. I think that's probably much more unlikely. Yeah. But we can't go assuming. Well, it's very interesting that at the moment we basically have one character who is pro-corporation, one character that is anti-corporation, and four neutrals. I don't think Oya is a- is neutral. She's more than happy to work with the corporations. She, I think she and Cass have different concepts of what protest is and the ways that you can protest. And I think yeah. Oya is much more willing to... Um, you know that Nib comic that is... I have some problems with society. Interesting, yet you exist in society. And, yes. and I think that, you know, the idea that there are people for whom society's problems are unavoidable even though they object to how society is they still have to live and so they have to live in it and i think oya kind of occupies that position i think it's more of a spectrum so if you if you've got your three like if you've got your three main points of anti-pro and neutral then i would say that hops is bang on neutral i would say that anton is obviously very pro and Cass is very negative and that the other three fall somewhere in the middle of pro and neutral and anti and neutral yeah. and it's it, it's an interesting spectrum to kind of put them on and where they where they're going to slide to 
speaking of spectrums, mm. yes. I think, so this is really, really interesting. Sam is very obviously and very deliberately playing Lacey with uh, a couple of very particular traits um, that people very understandably look at and say, that reminds me of autism. Um, and I don't think they're in any way wrong because uh, there's the avoidance of eye contact, there's the slightly awkward social interaction, and many of these people themselves are autistic. And so therefore, they are absolutely right to make that comparison. I just am going to say, like, personally, because it's not Bondor autism, if that makes sense, and because there's a triad of things that are how you diagnose autism right now, let alone what the definition of autism might be in a hundred years' time, that I don't want to say Lacey is definitely autistic. But yeah, I agree, I agree with Lacey you. Lacey is definitely neurodivergent. Because I don't want to say, like, every character or every person that can't look people in the eyes has autism. Because other people might just as easily look at that and think, oh, because this character is autistic, I can't identify necessarily with the thing that I do identify with. So I think I personally am going to be hesitant to use that label unless Lacey themselves claims it at some point. But I do think it's very interesting that Sam has already shown that Lacey has a, a much more neurodivergent picture than probably most characters we've seen for a long time. Definitely. And I think it also plays into looking across the board, body language. The way that each character is carrying themselves, each player, so I mean, and how they are embodying their characters, it's it goes back to how Sheila Tomorrow had they were completely committed to their characters. You can see as as Hector is just interacting, he's got this kind of puffed out <laughs> chest, his head is up tall, he's that kind of happy preppy He's a oh, peacock. Dear. He's a peacock. Yes. Exactly. But then you have Lacey at the complete opposite end, very reserved and quiet, and even the way that they talk is very like talking very quickly to get the point across and then kind of ending conversations earlier. And it all, I think they've taken a note out of Eric's book of how to embody characters and give us those markers non-verbally. I think when people play an RPG um, in this way for a long time as a single character, it's very easy to blur the line between the character and the player. And I think just because we've come from the last episode of S.H.I.E.L.D., we're seeing everyone have totally different body language. Um, and that's because yeah. they were doing body language very well, both as their S.H.I.E.L.D. characters and as their Callisto 6 characters. It's just that after a while on S.H.I.E.L.D., you just got to thinking that that was how Amy acted, even though it was kind of Amy being yeah. solo. And you just got to thinking that was how Hector was. But it was Hector being Martinez. Yeah. And I think um, just jumping to a totally new character from everyone has really highlighted that particular part of their acting. Yeah, I think that's just like across the board whiplash is happening. <laughs> Speaking of Amy, may I have a little bit of a gush about Amy's new character? I mean, you have to edit it, so go. <laughs> I think out of the characters at the moment, Cass is my favourite. And that comes from almost a place of it's such a breath of fresh air. Not saying that I didn't love Frollo to pieces and I didn't adore the Doctor, but in a lot of ways, the two of them were similar. They had huge differences, but they were similar. They were quite reserved a lot of the time. They were quite quiet. And Cass is just so in your face. She wears a bomber jacket. She's protesting with a cardboard sign with glitter all over it. 
she's like pummeling on her friend's door at the crack of dawn because she stayed up all night apparently she is just so brusque and powerful in a way that is so fun to watch amy have fun with because obviously amy has spent a long time playing a character so different from cass watching amy delight in being able to be so kind of out there and not have to think about what she's saying or when she's saying it is just adds to the enjoyment of watching cass on screen so what you're saying is we stand a punk biker legend yes I miss the antenna, though. Maybe Cass will get some antenna. We just don't know. I think Cass is going to be very important to me because of where she sort of intersects, like, butch women and rebel punk strong women and then also kind of her vulnerability and, like, the glitter thing and the way she 100% shows up for friendship. It's like this great mix of being, like, a tomboy and also quite femme. And I don't have coherent thoughts about that yet, but I'm already feeling quite verklempt about it so like uh just fair warning i may be crying at you in 12 episodes time about what that means to me as a portrayal of uh how complex women can be i think another nice thing is that it gets to highlight another uh, a different part of amy's personality the uh more exuberant part that tends to be hidden away with the doctor and a little bit with rollo uh, and it's nice to see that part of amy's personality more highlighted in Cass. Yeah. We, we get to see Enthusy Amy. <laughs> yes, we do. We do get to Indeed. see Enthusy Amy. So, you were saying about Oya. Uh, as, yeah, I was saying about Oya. With Oya, Aliza gets to actually, you know, portray a lot of those emotions that, while playing Talon, they had to be much more subdued. This, they can come out a bit more naturally. And, and you could see just, you know, there's that exuberance, that excitement. Yeah, especially at the beginning. Of course, Oya had me a cafecito, you know. Cafecito. Yeah. And I think that's a really fun thing is um, Elisa calling on her heritage in both the Hispanic and Black. Yeah. And I really think we're going to see some very interesting um, kind of word usage and phrasing when it comes to Oya, kind of how we saw with Rollo. Yeah. And that it'll be very different from the rest of them. And I'm very, very down to see where that goes. It's also really nice to see Elisa be able to like openly celebrate her heritage because her character is explicitly Puerto Rican and uh, African-American. So she's drawing on those points of her own heritage to explicitly put them into Oya, which mm. is really nice. So she can just kind of be like, yeah, this is what it was like for me as a kid or yeah. all of that kind of stuff. It's just really nice to kind of see that explored and celebrated in a way that she wasn't able to do with Talon. Definitely. Yep. Although it is a nice through line seeing that uh, so far in the two examples that we have, she's always yes. played a mixed race character, which is very keeping in her yeah. personal background. I love me some Aliza. So I have two different questions and both of them kind of would lead on to this and I'm sorry. But do we think Anton is of the same heritage as Hector? Do we think the Namaste thing was Anton being appropriative or Anton calling upon um, the heritage of another type of brown person, if that makes sense. Based on what we've seen, I believe that it was appropriative and it was trendy. Corporate does seem to be a very trendy, appropriative kind mm. of environment and it wouldn't at all surprise me if that's something that Anton had picked up in his time in the corporate yeah. sphere. 
What would yeah. be hilarious is if we come across one of Anton's colleagues at some point and they greet everybody with namaste. Uh, I think uh, you have one more question, <laughs> yeah. Kato. What do we think Oya's powers are? <laughs> I would like to wait one more second. I would like to discuss personalities and then get powers. Okay, sure. Uh, just uh, off the top of my head, Hops' accent was really fun. Oh, man, she opened her mouth and I was so excited. And, and her kind of complete technologically illiterate oh, thing wonderful. is hilarious. Yes. When Bonnie pulled out the scrap of paper... <laughs> Yes. And everyone kind of looked at her like she kind of had maybe a contagious disease. It was delightful. <laughs> she just stepped yeah, in from that. a different time all the way back from the Stone Age. <laughs> yeah, I like I like anachronistic characters like that. Ah, so. lots of fun. And it kind of also harkens back to Rue. Mm. But I think also it's actually very interesting because she says, oh yeah, no, I don't have any of this stuff. But you think about her mum, who is explicitly addicted to tech, and it may be an outright rejection of the same technology that caused her mum to fall into an addiction. And that her father... So spent... she... And the mistreatment by the corporations and a bunch of stuff. So there are lots of, you know, you, you think, oh, it's really funny, but again, there may be a much deeper reason for for her doing so. Mm. And that'll be really interesting to find out in the next like few issues and what we actually do see. And obviously we've already kind of... Uh, mentioned on Lacey and how they're super interesting. Their name is great. If we go, I, I'm not going to say it because I can't say it nearly as quickly as Sam can. We're going to get a Percival thing going on. Ada Lovelace Lagrange Franklin. Thank you. And I can confirm that Franklin is Rosalind. Rosalind Franklin. Hmm. And also uh, harkens, I believe, to Sam's father. And so, and then someone we haven't particularly spoken about much is Luma. I don't have a read on her yet. Um, no, she was very yeah, much in the, the background, very quite... much supporting Lacey. So we don't really have much of what she's about yet. So, other than having fantastic hair. Luma is a great place to start with powers. As one of the few that we are really not sure on. Yeah. Because there's so many possibilities. So there's uh, obviously... The shifting shape could be shape-shifting, it could be phasing. I am in the shape-shifting camp or the illusion camp. It's illusion all the way for me. Yeah, it seems like Gina is playing a cyberpunk rogue. <laughs> she is every OC I made as a 14-year-old emo teenager, and I love it. Uh, does anyone else have anything they'd like to add to Luma? Uh, yeah, uh, she's Shadowcat. See, that's, yeah, that's the second thing, it could she's be phasing. phasing. Yeah, I, I'm uh, on the phasing side of the I, thing. Really, just so that we have multiple <laughs> options expressed. I liked Eric's description of her powers and the kind of concept of connectedness. I think mm. it's a nice parallel to Lacey's. I think that it sort of undermines that, underlines their bond that they both have very similar. You know, con connectivity can be both a technology thing and a um, a hippie thing, I guess. So I kind of I liked that little yeah. parallel as well. Um, I think Gina is very good at playing her cards incredibly close to her chest. Um, and I can't wait for the yeah. moment where she's like a royal flush, and we're all like, "Oh my god!" I think let's kind of like we'll riff off the ones that we kind of already are guaranteed. So we have Anton is a stretchy boy. I'm so excited! I'm very the excited. plastic Anton. man of the series. Plastic Fantastic. man, and but that yeah, some people on the Discord and Reddit have suggested potentially he can like manipulate his face into different shapes. I mean, disguise. so we could have some disguise. Yeah, interesting. Why not? It's oh. a possible use of the power. Exactly. A bit more, but yeah, an extension of the plastic power. Uh, we have Lacey as a technopath. Sorry, just in the intro of Lacey's powers, Eric very specifically said 
that everything was either on or off. And I think it is ridiculously unfair that Sam has to play a character whose powers are binary. It would also be interesting, though, if that if it starts out as everything is on or off, if Lacey gets, as Lacey gets stronger, if they gain the ability to s- s- do things selectively. Mm. So the more power and understanding they gain, the easier it is for them to deal with it in a less binary fashion. Yeah. Sam smashes binaries 2119. Moving on, we have Pops, who seems to have lightning and or weather powers. I'm so excited for Sparky Sparky yes. Boom Man. Some Me too. Kind of... Hops is Thor. Hop. There you go. Hops is yeah, all, basically all Thor. Raven and... from Mortal Kombat. And then we we have Cass as whether it be a combination of super strength, indestructibility, or just high resilience. Cass is a tank. There's a lot of potential for Cass in what exactly her power is. But I think we'll find that out in the next few episodes. Oh, it's basically beating the crap out of things and looking awesome while yeah, doing it. Yeah, but it also could be lowering resistance or making things softer. And like, there's so much that we don't know whether it is just strength. I just, I really want Cass to get a PhD in kicking butt so that Amy can continue to Me be too. the doctor. Um, <laughs> that's, that's really all I want out of life. Just tweet at Amy to say at one point in Callisto 6, have Cass say, I have a PhD in kicking ass. And then we're good. It's canon. So I think now we get to the really confusing one. We get to Oya. The man, the myth, the mystery. The mystery, the woman. Yeah, there are so know. many theories running around the Discord. Around that, Twitter. Around Twitter. We've got potential reality warping. We've got potential uh, premonition, a uh, premonition, not premonition. Um, she can turn got... into like a body of. <laughs> she can tell you who your date is going to yeah, be. She can tell you who you're going to prom with. I will fight all of you. Nice and you will know. lose. I call it right now. Oya's Doctor Strange. Man. So we could have magic. spells, magic. Uh, One that's that, kind of weird. Yeah, I think that doesn't like, particularly uh, fit the setting. Version, but not in a mystical sense, but in a way of using all the energies of the universe around and being able to see time and space. And just from the description, I got more of a, 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 a Doctor Strange feel. Yeah, the one that I found that was super interesting that was um, bouncing around Discord and a little bit on Twitter was rewinding. Ooh, yes, that'd be cool. So she's essentially a little bit like an Omega-13. Can just go... Yes, kind of, yes. Uh, yeah, so I think the, the main comparison was kind of like uh, Sands of Time, Prince of Persia. Yeah. Where it would be limited to a short time and maybe it's quite exhausting to use. It might cost XP. But the ability to redo things. Yeah. And I think that is the most narratively interesting choice. And I believe that Eliza, with her massive improv chops, could go really far with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I would add to that we really need a healer. I really stressed you guys. No one is the doctor, and it stresses me out. Um, hmm. And if anything, the, the thing I am most excited for in terms of time power potential is reversing time when someone dies to bring them back to life. Uh, because basically, mm. yeah, exactly, I'm and that's what I'm thinking is possible. Yeah, that is the problem with again this universe is once someone's dead, they dead. Mm. And then, but with time reversal, we also have potentially 
localized time reversal of making wounds not happen. Yes. One thing that I do want to say about Elisa's power, most of the theories and ideas that have been going around, even rewinding time to an extent, it's very interesting because if you look at everybody else's powers, they're very active. But most of the theories for Elisa's powers are very passive. So it's still a power. It's still really interesting and has so like there are so many ramifications it's actually uh lacy's power is quite uh passive unless there are specific like i mean there's you know controlling robots and being a boss yeah yeah yeah. but technopathy 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 i think is much more technopathy is much more is much more passive than the ability to beat people up with super strength or being windy windy so it's interesting to see that mix of kind of passive and active powers and what the balances are going to be like between those kind of two opposing forces and uh how the people with the active powers will learn to use them maybe in not a kind of let's every go in every time all guns blazing and uh the people with uh passive powers will learn to use them kind of in a more active and frontline scenario. Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how these powers develop. And how they support each other. Exactly. I do want to say about uh, technopathy is that you can do a lot of interesting things as far as, like, remote triggers. So, especially with us seeing Traeger having a lot of combat drones... Uh, Lacey Ooh, yes. could easily take over a combat drone and just oh, wreck things so up from awesome the inside. Yeah, we're going to see some real fun combat, I think. I actually do have one more point I would like to make, not necessarily about any character in particular, but I would be really interested to see or to find out if the players chose their powers or if Eric assigned them based on personality. personality. That's a very interesting question. Eric plus. Yes, please let us know, Eric. I know you're listening. I have another general question. Go ahead. Um, which is about the ages of the characters. Anton says that this is his first big boy job, kind of right out of school, and I'm assuming that is school used in the American context to also mean university, and that everyone oh, is yes, kind yes. of like in their early 20s. Um, but I still think that whether they are just out of school in the sense of being 18 or just out of school in the sense of being 21, it's still a very interesting kind of, they're all much younger than the characters on Shield, with the except it's like a team full of sages. And just think of how many oh, stupid yeah. mistakes and how much dumb, <laughs> like childish, immature mistake making led to so much great plot from Sage on Shield, and how much how great it's gonna be that now that we have a team full of sages making all the mistakes. <laughs> I'm so excited. So the way Need that I get the breakdown soda. of them is that they're definitely in pairs. I think Oya and Cass are probably more like mid-twenties. Anton and Hops, they're both early twenties, like twenty-two. But I have a feeling that Luma and Lacey are very young, more like eighteen, nineteen, if not seventeen. So that's kind of like the breakdown that I have. But none of them are none of them are are like late twenties, thirties, unlike their players. We'll just have to say. No one is, let's yeah. say the Rue or the Jiv uh, with the veteran talent. No one's in no their one's 40s. No in their 40s. No one has the life experience yeah. not to make stupid uh, and wonderful <laughs> mistakes over the course. I'm excited know, right? for that. We have, so we have Plastic Man, not Reed Richards. 
bold of you to assume that people in their 40s don't make stupid mistakes. Oh, no, no, no. They make different types of stupid mistakes. I am looking forward to seeing young okay, person yeah. mistakes. That exactly. is true. That's okay, true. so I would like to shift from the player characters into the small but fun little cast of NPCs that we have. Like, obviously, we had Mike and his very weird bike. I love him so, so yeah. much. He, he reminds me. Comic I really hope. That's not good. I really hope Mike turns back up. And me too. He's like he turns. He starts out, and you think he's going to be like a throwaway PC. Mike is the final villain, calling it now. <laughs> and he turns out to be like a really, really pivotal character who's deep undercover as a bike. As a he's a cop. As a bike driver. He's a cop. He's a changeling. He's a changeling. He could actually have those powers after this, you know. That's what Luma's powers are. Luma's powers are that she's a changeling. Shapeshifting, Ooh. I told you this. No, 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 she's a literal changeling from the planet of the changeling. From Star Trek, Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. One of the ones we like Odin, which Star has been Trek, sent, yes. sent out, yeah, and landed on Earth. So, yeah, that makes uh, sense. I think yeah, perfect. On top of, on top of no, Mike and his bike, no, we no, had no, no, the... No, we have, to, we have to remain loving Mike and his bike long enough for me to say that he reminds me very much of the crowd of NPCs in Levitus. Um, there's a, a squid-faced oh, yes. biker in Levitus um, inside the whale in Doctor Who. Um and there's a couple of other really interesting, quirky characters that run a tea-growing shop thing uh, who yeah. both have the same name and are related or possibly married to each other. It was really unclear. Um, but I love all of them. And Mike reminded me of, of that type of Eric character, the small uh, kind of throwaway NPC um, that just is a delight and you want to have back all the time, even though they're not necessarily the most plot relevant. And I love them. He's the victor of this campaign. And it also reflects in the dads. Oh, they were so oh, charming. Yeah. That conversation was we so must funny. Do, we must do everything to protect the dads. They yes. are just so all the parents. Oh, no, they, they are all so the screwed. Yes, all the parents. They're so screwed. Well, I think <laughs> my favorite part of that conversation with the dads, it was wonderful. Every part of it was delightful. But it was the, have I put on weight yes. Com- yeah. compared to when? <laughs> I'm going swimming. God, it was... Sh- <laughs> it was very real. It was yes. beautiful. And the, I'm not saying it's bad way. Dad, what's a cool? Yeah. <laughs> but the, and the thing is, uh, with, with this having a more consistent kind of hub setting, we're going to see these NPCs grow organically and actually learn more about them. And I'm really excited for that. But then we have, like, some of the more sinister NPCs. We had the, uh, the representative... Uh, who stole Lacey's portfolio, or maybe Michelle. just Michelle. Um, so I don't know if she stole it or if she was genuine, but I think we'll see the outcome of that next session. Michelle from Cassie. it's hard to say. I have a yeah. read that she's genuine, but it's, she did her seem to definitely she, d- not. she definitely yeah, seemed to know what was going on in Cassium's projects department enough to know that hey, uh, this Lacey has. Some stuff which might this. be of interest to our team. Yeah. And then the most interesting NPC so far. I'm so excited for Kylan Kraus. I'm sorry, Mike the Bike is clearly no, the most Mike interesting the bike NPC. Can, can crash and die. <laughs> <laughs> Kylan Kraus is my Lex Luthor, and I'm so excited. He, he is so oh yeah. sinister. Because like every douche. word is just laced with this corporate greed. Slime. What I find really interesting about Kylan is that, yes, he is the slimiest asshole that I think Eric really has ever 
ever portrayed. Mm. Like, he made my skin mm. crawl. But at the same time, it's so hard to tell at this early stage if he's, like, truly an evil villain, like, and he's going to be one of the big bad bosses or even maybe kind of like a, a midway boss or if, if he's going to be a major antagonist or if he's just a slimy asshole. Or if he's right. He could, he could be yeah. just a figurehead for... Um... Pyramid. Well, I mean, he could be a slimy asshole and right. That's mm. what I mean. Like, hashtag Lex did nothing wrong. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Where to even begin? I am obviously aware that Lex did many things wrong. He stole forty cakes. That's as many as four tens, and that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, Why? So I think um, let's. I think let's move away from characters and setting, and have, maybe have a quick chat about the wonderful and interesting cipher system. I think they're really going to benefit from this kind of not-so-rules-heavy yeah. system. And it's kind of, um, if you if uh, people listen to The Adventure Zone, when they go from D&D 5th Edition into Fate Core and uh, Monster of the Week, much more interesting and dynamic things happen because they're not so restricted. And I think that's just because Clint can't play. D &D. And that's because Clint can't play D and D. <laughs> um, but it will allow them these people who are so good character actors to really push and go to places that we have never seen before. I think what's really interesting about the cipher system and what it's going to add to this group is that instead of watching a group of actors play a role playing game, what you've got is a role playing game assisting in an improvised narrative. Mm. So it's almost like they could probably do this entire game without dice. You could I could very easily just watch the six of them at a table telling this story week to week. But what I think the dice will do and what the system will do is add some really interesting uh, narrative choices through randomization, poor roles, and that kind of thing. And also, as the characters develop and they get kind of with the with the XP system and all of that kind of things, it gives them a really interesting choice about where to where to take their characters by the you know by how they choose their stats. And so I think it's like you said, much better for these kind of players because they are so role play heavy that it frees them up to much more of that role play, but gives them that added element of purpose in the story by way of dice rolling and having those character stats. Though I will miss the crunchier things that we had in Star Trek. I miss it so Like, much. we had the ship ship combat, I miss it we had so extended much. tasks, and the... It's been a week, There, there, might, there might be ship system. combat. We've got a whole bunch of ships in mm. Raft City so, which might be able to fight each other. Don't you destroy any yeah. one of my beautiful so, boats. Uh, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Eric compensates for the lack of these crunchier mechanics. And because having run some of these rules-like systems, things like combat can become dull. So it's actually quite GM-dependent to keep things interesting and to maintain that level of stress and a level of kind of intensity without it feeling a little bland. Right. But then you can also end up in the opposite end, where I sometimes you find with um, Dungeons and Dragons, is that there's too much, and you end up with combat that lasts, combat that hours. lasts four hours. So we'll see how we land when we start getting into combat. I I think I kind of have to be bar humbug about this. Like I really like XP. I really like that it kind of has that story point, 
you can gift it to other players thing and also kind of fulfills the role of momentum in the system. I do really miss roll-offs and player versus player roles. And I think that was something I noticed this game was that only one player would roll during a player versus player contest. And I'd be like, but that takes all the fun out of it, really. Because you're not actually rolling against the other player, you're rolling against the GM set difficulty setting. Um, And I kind of was like, uh, that's that's something I'm going to miss. Um, Mm, Yeah. Especially like listening to the Champions cast and having a system dedicated to opposed roles and how much I love how that works narratively, especially with social combat. It's something I'm like, I really want to happen because we're going to have some really opposing ideas in this party. Yeah. And can you imagine if they have to roll to persuade Anton and Anton doesn't get a roll to resist? It's just their role to see how well they talk. And I think that, or vice versa, like equally you want it to measure both the character's mental strength in resisting a, a persuasion role and also the effectiveness of the persuasion role. Um, and that's the beauty of roll-offs, is that they allow both characters to have their abilities measured in one role. Hmm. Well, I think it, it's a little bit difficult because of the way the Scythe system does roles. The opposed roles will be a little bit weird, but maybe we'll see opposed roles where the defender influences the difficulty of the check. Yeah, that would be interesting. Rather than it being a, my number is bigger than your number. Yeah. Because we have just straight 20 rolls with no modifiers, whereas the D- the DC is the thing that modifies things. So I'm interested to see how this will happen, because I th- to going back for social combat in Star Trek, that was really interesting as well. Yeah. So I think it's really up to Eric to maintain that expectation and continue on. And with systems like Cypher System, they encourage you to change things, and do whatever suits your party. I think it's very difficult with social combat to define that, and I think you have to be really, really careful with social combat, um, because you can you can make a very, very well-articulated, very charismatic argument that is logical and sound and makes sense, but if you appeal, say, to someone's heart, and they are a very, very much a character that thinks with their mind, or vice versa, or you appeal to their love of their country, and they hate their country and they're all about personal independence, no matter how well you articulate that argument, you are always going to fail at that attempt at persuasion because you aren't appealing to their core values. And the nice thing about roll-offs in social combat is that it kind of reflects both your personal ability to resist persuasion and the ability to persuade, and it is a slightly better way of reflecting the fact that it's not just about one person being active and one person being passive, it's a mix of both players and it allows both players to contribute uh, so it's just it's just my preference for social combat is that style regardless of what the physical is doing yeah and i think the main thing is that uh the player who is on the defense still feels like they are active in the contest there's another thing that i do not i'm being very negative unfortunately i hate change basically is what we're learning here <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, change Don't worry. In in twelve Except weeks, you'll be thinking, "Oh, all this. I, I miss. I'm going to miss all this." I still miss Doctor Who. Yeah, what's a hypothesis? Um, I so I actually really dislike the division of stats in the Cipher system because the core stats are, I believe, speed, might, and intellect. And speed kind of embodies both dexterity and physical speed. Might is strength, as you'd expect, and also resistance. And intellect is intelligence, both intelligence and wisdom from a D&D point of view, and then also charisma. And that just makes... Where's my social stat? That makes no sense to me. Like, 
uh, I really liked. I, I suppose I am just used to Star Trek adventures, and it will take some getting used to, and me kind of being like, "Oh, okay, we do things this way now." But I was very used to having presence as a an actual kind of stat for charisma, because I think I think Anton is a very charismatic character, for example, and Lacey is a very intellectual character, and it does not seem to me logical that because Lacey is intellectual, they should also be charismatic. In fact, I would argue that they are, as a character, not very charismatic. They aren't role-played in a way that suggests they're charismatic. And yet, mechanically, I think they are very likely to be very good at charisma. And that doesn't follow to me. Yeah, that, that makes that makes sense. You, you can have people who are really quite intelligent, but in a social context might be completely useless, like me. Mm. Um, so... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's one it's one of the major limitations of a three stat system over the standard six. But the classic three stat system is physical, social, mental. It's not physical, physical, mental, social. A three stat system can never cover everything because you do have those kind of boundaries where sometimes it would be preferential to have more discernibility. But considering that the cipher system has one gained the popularity that it has. And we have a game master like Eric. I believe that he will nudge the system in every which way to make these character personalities shine through these stats or without the stats. As um, as said, like there could be zero stats, zero dice rolling, and Eric would would be able to let the characters shine in their own ways. So I think again, it's just we're going to have to wait and see how he does that. Okay. I guess. I suppose I'll watch this show next week. Whatever. <laughs> I think that even if there are failings to a system, and no system is perfect, that these characters and Eric as a GM and these players will make that system work. Moving forward, we have a couple of interesting plot threads. We obviously have the Callisto 6 canister. We have the uh, device that Lacey is carrying around. and That is really interesting to me because what Kato and I were discussing after we initially watched the show was that whatever this device is, it's been recovered from the ruins of what is heavily implied to be Santa Monica. And so what the implication from that is, is this object was current technology or from the time before the calamity. So this is not, in a Star Trek sense, advanced technology from an alien world. So even though it's new to us, this is kind of standard for whatever alien species we've recovered this from. But this technology is supposedly not necessarily ancient because it's only kind of 40 years or whatever, but this technology has been recovered from pre-apocalyptic Los Angeles. And so whatever it is, is technology that was commonplace or at least available before C-Day happened and before this apocalypse happened. So it's really interesting to see this kind of past technology being recovered and also being completely unknown. Part of the reason that's so interesting is that inherently something that's from an alien world, uh, we as watchers can never expect to understand. But the calamity took place roughly 40 years before the setting of the story, and the device is from that time, which means it's much, much closer to being contemporary with us, uh, which means that we have a lot more chance to be able to say, 
hey, I recognize that thing. Um, and it's one of my favorite things about kind of post-apocalyptic sci-fi is when they have something that we recognize and that is very familiar to us in a totally different and wrong context. And I love suddenly understanding what something is when you are seeing it from an alien, an essentially alien perspective. And then suddenly you're like, oh, it's that thing. And seeing the familiar through alien eyes is really, really beautiful. Spoiler alert, it's a beta. I think it sounds quite a lot. It's a beta max Yep, it's a Betamax player. I'm thinking it's military R and D from the forties. Or not for, not forties, but forty Which years 40s? ago. From the because from the twenty seventies. Yes, from the twenty eighties. Because it's not very well known, but like Los Angeles, like right outside LAX, there's a big old building. You know what the what company owns that building? It's Raytheon. Raytheon makes missiles. Yep. And go. a lot of um, oh they boy. make a lot of military avionics. There are a whole bunch of military research outposts in LA. It's also another reason why there are a whole bunch of games out there. But I'm thinking that this device is military R and D. Mm, I actually really like that theory. Yeah, that's a really yeah, good theory. I, I like too. that. All right, so last point. I was about to say, does anyone have anything else they'd like to say? I about totally do. Issue yeah, number one. One thing. Uh, yeah, no. One other plot point. I really do think that the thing with Lacey's portfolio is going to be quite a pivotal plot point. I am convinced. My my take on it is that Michelle, maybe. I don't necessarily think Michelle is evil. Like we said earlier, I don't think Michelle has bad intentions. I think her superiors do. Um, I think Michelle has basically taken her portfolio to be like, hey, this kid's really smart. We should employ them. And Michelle's employers just go, we'll just steal their research. They can't prove it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I genuinely think whatever products come of this, Lacey will recognize their work. But I think we're going to see a fully realized product that was only possible with Lacey's research later on in the show. Maybe even um, in the next few mm. episodes in yeah, the series. It depends on how, how that gets resolved. But I think that's a, a pivotal point. I think that's going to be quite important. Measure Z. I find that interesting of what, what it's about. I mean, it's causing a lot of social conflict in the city. You had, what, 4,000 protesters not very, not very much. But then you had another two thousand counter protesters, and it led to a full scale riot, in which a whole bunch of taser, shotguns, and plasma stun thingies were used all over the shop to start bringing the crowd to heel. Uh, so I'm interested to find out what it is. I'd expect that only through riots that involve more than not point not seven percent of the population, which incidentally is the amount of population that was involved in the riots in issue one um, in order to incite the government into seeming to do something about it. So it's interesting that such a small number of people can pressure the corporations into even allowing something like that onto the ballot in the first place. It's very intriguing to see the origins of Measure Z and what exactly it is, because it could be something of an just a placating gesture from the corporations that they have guarantees will never pass because they control courts and they control laws. If so, they Break are the vote. ridiculously terrified of a ridiculously small minority 
And I want to yes. know why their power base is so fragile. Because exactly unreasonably fragile if they're that scared at 6,000 people. Mm. 4,000 people. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think we need to really understand what Measure Z is. Yeah. Uh, and we're not going to know that till the future. Although I, I'm going to, on a working theory, that it's actually to do with zombies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, our new, that's our new changeling for... But it's whether they're going to release World War Z 2. <laughs> people are really opposed to Brad Pitt being in yeah, another people world. People just hate Brad Pitt, even though he's somehow still alive. <laughs> Brad, just die. He's a robot, he can't. He's yes, been, he's been kept alive by all the cybernetics now. He's longer, simply to make <laughs> a World War Z 2. <laughs> world War Z 2, starring Brad Pitt as every zombie. <laughs> <laughs> That's cloning for you. That's where the true biotechnology budgets have been shut, shifted to clone Brad Pitt. <laughs> that is another thing. What happened to Hollywood? Let's not start yeah. the discussion. Let's save that until Hollywood becomes present in the story. Because, <laughs> oh boy. So, I believe that... Yeah, I don't a good think place... Disney would have rolled over that easily. Disney yeah. are one of so, the corporations. I believe that's a good place to end this, this, this episode of the podcast. It's a really good show. And I wish... I loved it more straight out of the gate. I don't think it's the fault of Eric. I don't think it's the fault of Sam. I don't think it's the fault of the system. I think everyone has been superlative. We need to hit our I remember moment. Yeah, I think I think yeah. we, we, we we're still at encounter of half point. Yeah, it's impossible to compare this show to where Shield ended because it obviously does not have the complexity in its first episode that Shield had after a year. And also it's even sorry, it's also even hard to compare it to Shield episode one because Shield benefits from Star Trek. Fifty years of Star Trek law continuity there already established. You don't have to go around establishing a universe really because it's all there in DVDs already there. Everything, yeah, exactly. This is brand new, out of the package. Eric's created it, so yeah. I think that they've done a lot of prep work, and I believe Kato, what you're trying to say is that you believe in them. But you're just not there yet. On on some level, yes. Like I do 100% believe in them, and I'm very excited to see where the show goes. Um, I don't think I am ever going to love it as much as I love Shield because I do not think that the setting works as well for me personally. Um, and yeah, it's going fair. to be really interesting to continue doing this podcast uh, because I don't want to be negative. I don't want to be overly negative. I want to sort of like be able to make criticism without turning it too negative or too nasty but i think um just because i don't seem as in love with it as i was with shield or with doctor who both of which i deeply deeply love um it's because this setting doesn't work for me as well as the others do and that is that i will try to keep that to criticism of setting and not to criticism of the rest of the show because it's not fair to criticize the rest of the show for what is essentially a setting problem i am looking forward to Eric and Sam and everyone else rising to the challenge of changing my mind about cyberpunk and changing my mind about somewhat dystopian near futures um, and making me love them. But at the moment, that is definitely kind of a somewhat impossible challenge they have. I also think there's also a general malaise of bad post-apocalyptic... Yeah. Bad post-apocalyptic stuff that we've had recently... There's a big dearth of it re- in the past five years. And so there could be a little bit of fatigue from that setting. That's setting. I think I think you actually put it best in your misspeak of, bad, of post-apocalypse shit. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think at this point we are excited for issue two and curious as to where the story is going to go. For the people listening, you can follow the Raft City Radio podcast on Twitter at Callisto6Pod or email us at RaftCityRadio at gmail.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store, and we would gladly appreciate if you decide to leave a rating or write a review. Our theme song is Cephalopod by Kevin MacLeod. You can find his work at www.incompetech.com. Our show notes for this episode can be found at www.rossityradio.com. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned to this frequency.